Welcome to Choice Classic Radio, where we bring to you the greatest old-time radio shows. Like us on Facebook, subscribe to us on YouTube, and thank you for donating at choiceclassicradio.com. Makers of Campbell Soup present the Campbell Playhouse. Orson Welles produces. Tonight we bring you a revival of one of our favorite broadcasts, Charlotte Bronte's unforgettable love story, Jane Eyre. And in the title role, we proudly present a very gifted actress, a frequent and always welcome guest in the Campbell Playhouse, Miss Madeline Carroll. But first, Ernest Chappell has an interesting conversation to report, Mr. Chappell. Thank you, Orson Welles. You know, just this past week, I was talking to a man who, for a large part of his life, has been a globetrotter. In the course of our conversation, he said to me, I heard you on the Campbell Playhouse last Sunday night refer to the universal liking for chicken. Well, he continued, I believe I can vouch for that. I've discovered that chicken, prepared in one way or another, is among the best-liked dishes in every country I've visited. In Hungary, I've enjoyed chicken paprika. In Italy, chicken cacciatore. I've eaten chicken pilau in Armenia, curried chicken in India, and sat down to chicken tamales south of the border. Now... That comment of his struck me as highly interesting. With people the world around liking chicken so much, it's no wonder that Campbell's chicken soup is so popular. Because in every drop of the glistening golden broth, you taste rich chicken flavor. And steeped in the good flavor of the chicken, too, is the fluffy white rice, and there are pieces of tender chicken meat in every fragrant plateful. If you've already enjoyed this homey, old-fashioned chicken soup as Campbell's make it, won't you remember to have it again soon? And if you haven't yet tried it, won't you do so, say, at dinner tomorrow night? I promise you, just as sure as you like chicken, you like Campbell's chicken soup. And now, our Campbell Playhouse presentation of Jane Eyre, starring Madeline Carroll and Orson Welles. <laughs> In the last 90 years, Jane Eyre has acquired the full respectability of an English classic and has lost none of its color. It began as one of those books which everybody read and no nice person would ever read. But Jane Eyre, appearing in England as it did early in the reign of Queen Victoria, came as a general shock and was an immediate success. As appalling and popular as a royal scandal and as widely circulated as gossip. Here's a contemporary press notice, quote, Altogether, the autobiography of Jane Eyre is preeminently an anti-Christian composition. There is throughout it a murmuring against the comforts of the rich and against the privations of the poor, which as far as each individual is concerned is a murmuring against God's appointment. There is a proud and perpetual assertion of the rights of man, of which we find no authority either in God's word or in God's providence. We do not hesitate to say that the tone of mind and the thought which has overthrown authority abroad and fostered rebellion at home is the same which has also written Jane Eyre, unquote. The authorship of this scarlet indignity to English letters 
was variously attributed to almost everyone who could write except a certain Miss Charlotte Bronte of Yorkshire, who did write it in spite of that pen name, Corabell. Attributed with wild generosity to almost everybody in England, including the devil and Thackeray's governess, and even among others, the perpetrator of Wuthering Heights, who was indeed Miss Emily, another Bronte, and Charlotte's sister. The Brontes are a story in themselves, several stories, many of which you know and most of which I wish we had time to tell. My own personal favorite in that mysterious, lonely, impoverished, and entirely inexplicable family is the head of the household himself, the terrible-tempered Reverend Patrick Bronte, that gloomy man of God who, we are told, cleared the Bronte drawing room of visitors who happened to bore him by firing a revolver at the Bronte ceiling. But there's no end to these Bronte stories, so let's get to the beginning of Miss Charlotte's own. father or mother, brothers or sisters. As a child, I lived with my aunt, Mrs. Reed, at Gateshead Hall. I do not remember that she ever spoke one kind word to me. When I was ten years old, she sent me off to school. So, Mrs. Reed, it is the little girl respecting whom you applied to me. Her size is small. Uh, what is your name, little girl? Jane Eyre. Oh, say Jane Eyre, Mr. Brocklehurst, little girl. Jane Eyre, Mr. Brocklehurst. Well, Jane Eyre, are you a good child? No sight so sad as that of a naughty child, especially a naughty little girl. You know where the wicked go after death? They go to hell. Well, and what must you do to avoid going to hell? I must keep in good health and not die. And how can you keep in good health? Children younger than you die daily. Tell me, Jane Eyre. Do you read the Bible? Sometimes. But with pleasure? No, sir. No? Oh, how shocking. I have a little boy, younger than you, who knows six farms by heart. And when you ask him what he'd rather have, a gingerbread nut to eat or a verse of farm to learn, he always says, oh, a verse of farm. Angels sing farm, says he. I wish to be a little angel here below. He then gets two gingerbread nuts in return for his infant piety. <laughs> Psalms are not interesting. That proves you have a wicked heart, and you must pray God to change it, and to give you a new and clean one, and to take away your heart of stone, and give you a heart of flesh, and we will try our best to help God, will we not, Mrs. Reed, and make you a useful and humble girl. <laughs> I left Gateshead Hall on a dark, cold morning for Lowood. As the coach started, I put out my head and looked back at the house and up at the window behind which my aunt was still sleeping. I'm glad you sent me away, Mrs. Reed, but I hate to live here with you. I will... oh, and if anyone asks me how I like you and how you treated me, I will always say you treated me with miserable cruelty. And it's the very sight of you makes me sick. <laughs> not so much a school as an institution for the children of the poor supported by charitable bequests. Soon after I was 18, I placed an advertisement in the Yorkshire Herald, applying for the position of governor. 
The following week, a reply came from a Mrs. Fairfax of Thornfield Hall near Milcote in Yorkshire. If J.E., who advertised last Thursday, is qualified to teach the usual branches of a good English education, together with French, drawing, and music, and if she is in a position to give satisfactory references of character and competency, a situation can be offered her where there is but one pupil, a little girl, nine years of age. Three days later, I left Lowood School. I arose and dressed myself with care. As I looked at myself in the mirror, I regretted that I was not handsome. I felt it a misfortune to be so little, pale, and with features so irregular and so marked. I brushed my hair very smooth, put on my black frock, adjusted my clean white tucker, then I set out for my new situation. On the evening of the next day, I was at Thornfield Hall. I was ushered into a small room. At a table by a cheerful fire sat the neatest imaginable little old lady occupied in knitting. How do you do, my dear? I'm afraid you've had a tedious ride. Are you, Mrs. Fairfax? You are right. Now sit down here before this fire here. You must be tired to death. Oh, no, indeed, ma'am. Shall I have the pleasure of seeing Miss Fairfax tonight? What did you say, my dear? I'm a little deaf. Shall I have the pleasure of seeing Miss Fairfax tonight? Oh, oh, you mean your pupil, Adele. Oh, she is not my daughter. Indeed. I have no family. And you have this great house all alone? Oh, bless you, my dear child. This house is not mine. It belongs to Mr. Rochester. And who is he? The owner of Thornfield Hall. You did not know he was called Rochester? He is our employer. He owns the house and much of the land about. I'm merely the housekeeper. Your pupil is his ward. He wrote to me to find a governess for her. He's not here himself. Almost never. Much of the time he's abroad. It seems strange for a gentleman to own this great house. He'd never stop there and enjoy it. You will find, Miss Eyre, that Mr. Rochester is in many ways a strange gentleman. I slept smooth and sounded at night in my new home. Once I woke and heard a clock strike. Last. 
When I woke, it was bright day and the sun was shining. And then, for many weeks, nothing happened to break the smooth course of our lives at Thornfield Hall. One day in January, a fine, calm day, I put on my coat and went out for a walk. As I started back, the afternoon was already dimming. On the hilltop above me sat the rising moon, pale as a cloud. I walked fast to get home. A sheet of ice covered the bridge where a little brook had overflowed after a rapid fall. Suddenly, in the distance, I heard the sound of hooves. A horseman came over the hill, down toward the little bridge. Get in! Get in! Get in! Are you injured, sir? Get him on sight. Pull her away. Turn pilot. He's there. Ah, my leg. If you are hurt and want help, sir, I can fetch a carriage from Thornfield Thank Hall. Thank you. I shall do. I have no broken bones. Only sprain. Go along, child. Leave me alone. I wouldn't think of leaving you, sir, at so late an hour. Till I see you are fit to mount your horse again. I should think you ought to be home yourself. You have a home in the neighborhood. Where do you come from? From just below. I'm not at all afraid of being out late when it is moonlight. You're just below? You mean in the house of the battlement? Yes, sir. Whose house is it? Mr. Rochester. Oh, you know Mr. Rochester? No, I have never seen He's him. He's not resident then? No. You tell me where he is. I cannot. I am told he's at Thornfield very rarely. Well, you're not a servant at all, of course. You're... I am the governess. Governess. Mr. Rochester's can't send you to fetch help. You may be able to help me yourself. You'd be too kind. Yes, sir. There's not an umbrella that I can use as a stick. No. Excuse me, necessity compels me to make you useful. Here, come close. Let me lean on your shoulder. Now, hold the bridle. Here we are. Yo. Uh, send me my whip. It lies there under the hedge. Yes, sir. Thank you. Goodbye, child. <laughs> Hey, Lane, to demand whether you'd, you'd bewitched my horse. I'm not sure yet. 
to your parents. I have none. Never had it, I suppose. You remember them? No, Mr. Rockwell. Who recommended you to come into Thornfield? I advertised, and Mrs. Fairfax answered my advice. Yes, Mrs. Fairfax speaks quite well of you. Praise will not bias me. You began by throwing down my horse. Yes. I have to thank you for this praise. Uh, what age were you, Miss Eyre, when you went to Lord? About ten. Stayed her eight years, went on about eighteen. So it was useful. <laughs> Tell me. Did you learn it, Lord? Can you explain? A little. Of course. Established answer. Sit down at the piano, Miss Eyre. I'm Miss Excuse my tone of command. I cannot alter my customary habits for a new inmate. Sit down at the piano and play a tune. Very well, sir. Enough, 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 Miss Ayers. Enough. Let's uh, play a little, I see, like any other English schoolgirl, perhaps better than some, but not well. Are you happy when you play? I'm absorbed, sir. You're so absorbed, Miss Ayers, that you have let Adele sit up past her bedtime. Good night. Good night to all of you now. I did not see Mr. Rockerson. Then one evening, he sent for me to come down. Come in, Miss Eyre. Seated. Don't draw that chair further off, Miss Eyre. Sit down exactly where I face it, if you please. Otherwise, I cannot see you without disturbing my position in this comfortable chair, which I have no mind to do. Uh, you examine me, Miss Eyre. Do you think me handsome? No, sir. No. On my word, there's something singular about you. Very quaint, quiet, grave, and simple. Sit there with your hands before you and your eyes generally bent on the carpet, except, by the way, when they are directed piercingly to my face, just now, for instance. When one asks you a question, you rap out a rejoinder, which isn't not blunt, at least brusque. What do you mean by it? Sir, I speak too plain. I beg your pardon. I, I ought to have replied that... that... The taste differs. Ah. Beauty is a little consequence. Okay. Something of that sort. You should have replied no such thing. Beauty is a consequence. Go on. What fault do you find with me, Trey? Well, I suppose I have all my limbs and all my features, like any other man. I am sorry, Mr. Rochester. Forgive me. It was only a blunder. Yes, so. I think so. And you shall be answerable for it now. Is there criticize me? Does my forehead not please you? Does it look as if I am a fool? Far from it, sir. Young lady, I even have a kind of rude tenderness of heart. Or don't you believe that? Oh, why don't you answer me? You look very much puzzled, Miss Eyre. You're not pretty any more than I'm handsome. Puzzled air becomes you. So puzzle on. You puzzled me the first evening I invited you down here. I've almost forgotten you since other ideas have driven me from my head. Tonight, I have resolved to be at ease. It would please me to draw you out to learn more of you. Speak. Speak. What about, sir? Whatever you like. I leave the choice of subject and the manner of treating it entirely to you. You're dumb, Miss Ayers, or stubborn. Yes, stubborn and a little annoyed. And it's my fault. I put my request in an absurd and almost insulting form. Miss Ayers, I beg your pardon. 
Where are you going, Miss Ayers? To put Adele to bed. It's past her bedtime. Confess it. You're afraid of me. I am bewildered. You're afraid. Your self-love dreads a blunder. I have no wish to talk nonsense. If you did it, you would do it in such a grave, quiet manner. I should mistake it for strength. You never laugh, Miss Ayers. Don't trouble to answer. Still bent on going. It is past nine, sir. Good night. Good night. Good night, Mr. I had no rest that night. I could not sleep for thinking of Mr. Rochester. The strange manner of speaking. The sad look that was in his eyes. His moodiness with others, his kindness to me. He had been at Thornfield six days now. Mrs. Fairfax said that he never stayed there more than a fortnight. In a few days, he'd be gone again. Fingers were groping their way along the panels in the dark gallery outside. Who is there? Who is it? Quickly, I got out of bed. I hurried on my frock and shawl. With trembling hands, I opened the door. The air was filled with smoke. There was a strong smell of burning. Mr. Rochester's door was ajar and smoke rushed from his room. I went in. The curtains were on fire. Wake! Wake, Mr. Rochester, wake! I was I rushed to the basement kitchen. Oh, what is it? Is there a flood? No, sir, but there's been a fire. In the name of all the elves in Christendom, is that Jane Eyre? Are you done with me, witch? Sorceress. And this smoke. Who's in this room beside you? You plotted to drown me? Oh, it's like a candle, sir. Uh, wait, I'll get my dry garments. Where are they? Yes, here they are. Here's my dressing gown. I run for candles, sir. Shall I call Mrs. Fairfax? Fairfax? Sir? The deuce did you call her? Why not at all? Listen to Look at me, Jane. Jane. Did you hear an odd laugh tonight? Have you heard that laugh before? Is that right in? Yes, sir. I thought perhaps one of the stairs. Just so, one of the stairs. That's what you guessed it, Jane. I'm glad you're the only person acquainted with it besides Peter as a nice expert in talking to you. Jane, say nothing about it. Return to your own room. I shall do very well on the sofa in the library for the rest of the night. Two hours of service, dear. Good night. Are you quitting me already in that way? You have said I might go, sir. Oh, but not without taking leave. Not in that brief, dry fashion. Why, you saved my life. At least shake hands. Jane. Save my life. I knew you'd do me some good in some way, somehow. Oh, 
I'm glad I happened to be awake. You will go. I'm cold, sir. Uh, cold? Uh, yes, I'm standing in a pool of water. <laughs> go, then. Go. listening to the Campbell Playhouse presentation of Jane Eyre, starring Madeline Carroll and Orson Welles. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. This is Ernest Chappell, ladies and gentlemen, welcoming you back to the Campbell Playhouse. In a moment, we shall resume our presentation of Jane Eyre. Uh, but right now, there seems to be a little discussion going on. Let's listen and uh, find out what it's all about. Yes, he's so fond of good soup. I made soup for him. He brought me back home. But I declare, what with three children in my house? Don't tell me you still make soup. Why, yes, don't you? My husband well, My dear, I haven't made a kettle of soup in, oh, ages. But you're such a good cook, Ethel. Why, I thought as a matter of course you made your own soup. No. One day, quite a while ago, I said to myself, I'm going to try one of Campbell's soup. Well, I tried one, and then I tried others, and we liked them so much that from that time on, I've served nothing else. Well, Harry and I decided it just didn't pay for me to bother making soup anymore. Just you serve two or three of your husband's favorite soups as Campbell's make it, and see if you don't do the same as I did and give up making soup at home and and so it goes. As one good home cook tries Campbell's soups, sees how homelike they are and fine flavor and nourishment, notes how much your family likes them, and then tells a friend. Perhaps a friend has persuaded you to try Campbell's soups. Perhaps you're already enjoying at your house your favorites among these 21 fine soups. But if not, won't you try them? If you will, I'm almost sure you too will join with other good home cooks everywhere and turn your soup-making over to Campbell. And now we resume our presentation of Jane Eyre, starring Orson Welles and Madeline Carroll. I did not see Mr. Rockefeller again for several weeks. He had left Thornfield Hall. And when he did finally come home, it was with a large company of very elegant guests. The day of the house was filled with their maids and valets. There was one lady in particular to whom my master, Mr. Rochester, seemed especially attentive. The Honorable Blanche Ingram, Lord Ingram's sister, here. She held the most beautiful girl in the county. She is beautiful. And this beautiful and accomplished young lady is not yet married? It appears not. The fact is, she has no red large fortune. But Mrs. Fairfax. Is there not some wealthy nobleman or rich man who has taken a fancy to her? Mr. Rochester, for instance? He is rich, is he not? Oh, yes. But you see, there is a considerable difference in age. Mr. Rochester is past 40. Miss Ingram is barely 20. But what is that? More unequal marriages are made every day. True. 
Yet I scarcely fancy Mr. Rochester would entertain an idea of Lester. Mr. Rochester is very talented and lively in society. The ladies are very fond of him. But I don't think he has any intention of marrying anybody. What's the matter with your child? He's eaten nothing. He scarcely speaks of anything since he began to eat. What is it, Jane? What's happened to you? to wish to introduce my pupil, Adele, to the ladies in the drawing room after dinner. As they came in from the dining room, their dresses gleamed in the light. I rose and curtsied to them. One or two bent their heads in return. The others only stared at me. As soon as I could, I left quietly to the side door. In the passage, I noticed that the ribbon of my shoe was loose. I stooped to tie it. How do you do? Oh, I'm very well, sir. Jane, why did you not come over and speak to me in the drawing room? I did not wish to disturb you. What have you been doing during my absence? Nothing particular. Teaching Adele, as usual. I'm getting a good deal paler. Turn to the drawing room, Miss Eyre. Deserting too early. I'm tired, sir. And a little depressed. Tonight I excuse you. Understand that as long as my visitors stay, I expect you to appear in the drawing room every evening. I wish. Don't neglect it. What the devil is that at this time of night? Shall I go and see, sir? Yes, Jane, I must return to my guest. I fear Miss Ingram will have marked my absence. Well, whoever it is, say I'll, I'll not see him. Yes, sir. Yes, Jane. What is this? You seem excited. Just the man to see you, sir. He wouldn't be put off. He said he'd wait for you. He went into the drawing room. The devil he did. Have you got his name? His name is Mason, sir, and he comes from the West Indies. From uh, Jamaica, I think. Mason! West Indies? That what he said? You feel ill, sir? Jane. Oh, lean on me, sir. Jane, you offered me a shoulder once before. Let me have it now. Yes, sir. Yes, in my arms. Jane, if all the people in that drawing room came in a body and spat at me, what would you do, Jane? I'd turn them out of the room, sir, if I could. But if I were to go into them and they dropped off and left me one by one, what then? Would you go with them? I rather think not, sir. I should have more pleasure in staying with you. To comfort me? Yes, sir. To comfort you as well as I could. Go in the drawing room, Jane. Just step quietly up to Mason and whisper in his ear that Mr. Rochester wishes to see him. Bring him here in the evening. Good night. 
later that night, I wakened suddenly. Sponge in your room? Yes, sir. Have you any salt? Yes. Fetch both. Jane, you won't turn sick at the sight of blood. I don't think I shall. I've never been tried yet. Let me see. Give me your hand. Warm and steady. You do. I followed Mr. Rochester to the floor above. He entered a large room, and beyond that there was an open door. There was a light shining there. And from inside came a low sound, almost like a dog growling. In the chair in the center of the room was the form of a man, huddled and still. Rochester held a candle over it. I saw that it was a stranger mason, the man that had called earlier that evening. His sleeve and his shirt on one side were soaked with blood. She's done for me. Talking with blood, that's all. No, he's... Jane, hold a candle. Hold it safe. She went at me with her teeth. Mason, you shot me like a dog when you took the knife from her. Put on your glove. Oh, it was quite my I didn't expect it. She looked so quiet, so quiet at first. I warned you, Mason. I, I thought I could have done some good. You thought, you thought, Mason. It makes me impatient to hear you now. Get up. Let's be out of the house before morning. Rochester. She sucked the blood. She said she drained my heart. Oh, be silent. Don't mind her gibberish. Don't repeat it. I wish I could forget it. Oh, you will, Mason, when you're out of the country. Now, come on. I'll help you downstairs. There's a carriage waiting. You get back to Spanish town, you'll think of her as dead and buried. You think of her at all. Hodgson. Had to be taken care of. Had to be treated as as tenderly as me. I do my best, Mason, and have done my best and will do it. Never fear. Yet what to God there was an end to all this. A splendid midsummer shone over England. a band of Italian days had come from the south like a flock of glorious passenger birds and lighted to rest them on the cliffs of Elgin. The last of the visitors had long since gone away. A great calm descended upon Thornfield Hall and Mr. Rochester stayed on. Among the servants, the talk continued about his coming marriage to Miss Ingram. Yet I saw no preparations going on for such an event. I used to look at my master's face to see if it was sad or fierce. I could not forget that dreadful night, that strange, secret terror that seemed to hang over him. But I had never seen his face so clear of clouds or of feeling as it was in those weeks. Never had he called me more frequently to his presence. Never had he been kinder to me. And alas, never had I loved him so well. Down into the orchard, enticed there by the light of the rising moon. 
I heard a nightingale singing in the woods far away. The trees were laden with ripening fruit. Jane. Good evening, Jane. Thornfield's a pleasant place, Miss Summer. Yeah. Yes, sir. You must have become to some degree attached to the house. Oh, I am attached to it indeed. And would be sorry to part with it. Yes. Mm. Pity. So is the way of events, Miss Wright. No sooner have you got settled in a pleasant resting place than a voice calls to you to rise and move on for the hour of repose has expired. Must I move on? Must I leave Thornfield? I believe you must, Jane. I am sorry, Jane, but I believe indeed you must. Well, sir, I shall be ready when the order to march comes. Come now. Must give it tonight. You're going to be married, sir? Exactly. It's precisely. Your usual acuteness, you've hit the nail straight on the head. Soon, sir. Very soon. That means that you and your pupil... Look at me, Jane. You're not turning your head to look after more nightingales, then. Adele must go to school, and you, Miss Eyre, will get a new station. Yes, sir. I will advertise immediately. I'm ready through my future mother-in-law. Heard of a place that I think will suit, uh, a place in Connacht, Ireland. It's a long way off, sir. From what, Jane? Oh, from England and from Thornfield and... Well? From you, sir. It is, to be sure it We've been good friends, Jane, have we not? Now come, we'll sit here in peace tonight, though we should never more sit here together. Sometimes I have a queer feeling with regard to you, Jane. Especially when you are near to me now. It's as if I had a string somewhere under my left ribs, tightly and inextricably knotted to a similar string situated on the corresponding corner of your little frame. And if that boisterous channel comes broad between us, I'm afraid that cord of communion will be snapped. A nervous notion I should take to bleeding inwardly. As for you, you'd forget me. Oh, that I never should, sir, you know. I wish I'd never been born. I wish I'd never come to Thornfield. Because you're sorry to leave it? Because I have known you, Mr. Rochester. And it strikes me with terror and anguish. I absolutely must be torn from you forever. It's like looking at the necessity of death. Where do you see the necessity? Where you, sir, placed it before me. In what shape? In the shape of your bride, Miss Ingram. My bride? What bride? I have no bride. But you will have. Yes, I will. I will. But I must go. You have said it yourself. No, you must stay. I swear it, and the oath should be kept. But I tell you, I must go. Do you think I can stay to become nothing to you? Do you think because I am poor, obscure, plain and little, that I am soulless and heartless? I have as much soul as you and full as much heart. Jane, be still. Jane, I offer you my hand, my heart and a share of all my possessions. Don't mock me. I ask you to pass through life at my side to be my wife. It's you only I intend to marry. Your bride stands between. My bride is here. What love would I have for Miss Ingram? None, and that you know. I would not, I could not marry her, you strange. You must unearth this thing. 
Do you sincerely wish me to be your wife? I do, sweetie. Then I'll marry you. Come to me, Jane. Come to me entirely now. Make my happiness. I will make yours. God pardon me. Men meddle not with me. I have her and I'll hold her. charge you both, you Edward Rochester and you Jane Eyre, that if either of you know of any impediment why you should not lawfully be joined together in matrimony, do you now confess it? Edward Rochester, wilt thou have this woman for thy wedded wife? This marriage cannot go on. Proceed with service. An insuperable impediment to this marriage exists. I can prove it. What is the nature of the impediment? The existence of a previous marriage. Mr. Rochester has a wedded wife, now living. Can you prove that, sir? Of course, I have an affidavit. I affirm and can prove that Edward Rochester of Thornfield Hall in the county of Yorkshire was married on the 20th of October. That does not prove that my wife is still living. She is living. She is now living at Thornfield Hall. I saw her there last April. Who are you, sir? I am her brother. Gentlemen! Gentlemen! What this man here says is true. Bigamy is an ugly word, yet that is what I meant to be, a bigamist. I have been married, and the woman to whom I was married is alive. And all of you say you never heard of a Mrs. Rochester in a house up yonder. I dare say you've often heard gossip about the mysterious lunatic kept under watch and ward. I now inform you that she is my wife, Bertha Mason, whom I married 15 years ago in Spanish Town, Jamaica. Bertha Mason is insane. She came of an insane family, and they knew it when they let me marry her. You may see for yourself, if you wish, what sort of being I was cheated into marrying and judge whether or not I had a right to break the compact and seek happiness with this girl I love. Take the coach back to Thornfield. Will not be wanted today. Have a right about every one of you. Away with your congratulations and your sympathy. Who wants them? They're 15 years too late. Tied on my bonnet, pinned my shawl, took my slippers which I had not put on yet, and stole from my room. For the last time, I passed Mr. Rochester's door and started silently down the dark stairs. Jane! Jane! You're going, Jane? I'm going, sir. You're leaving me? Yes. Yes? Don't you mean to go one way in the world and let me go another? I do. You will not stay, Jane. You will not be my comforter. 
my rescuer. My deep love, my tragic grief, nothing to you. I must oh, go. Oh, Jane, this is wicked. It would be not... Jane, it won't be wicked to love me. It would be to obey you. And you will not yield. Jane, you will not stay. No. God bless you, my dear Mark. God keep you from harm and wrong. Reward you well for your past kindness to me. Farewell. Oh, Jane. Farewell. Jane, my hope. My love. My life. Sadly, I made my way downstairs. Dawn glimmered in the yard. I set out across the field. My shoes were wet with dew. I thought of him now in his room, watching the sun rising, hoping I should soon come back and say I'd stay with him. I went on through the fields, stumbling blindly, not knowing where I was going. A year and a half went by. I took a position that was open in a school in the Midlands, as far as I could from Thornfield. But I thought of Mr. Rochester everywhere. I longed to know what had become of him. In the end, I wrote to Mrs. Fairfax and begged for news. Three months wore away. Day after day, the post arrived and brought nothing for me. Then one day, I could stand it no longer. I packed my things and took a stagecoach for the north. Thirty-six hours later, I was at Milford. Well, I'm away today, ma'am. You see, we don't get many travelers here these days. You lose your way or something? I thought perhaps you could tell me. Is Mr. Rochester living at Thornfield Hall now? Why, Mum. You must be a proper stranger in these parts. Don't you know? Thornfield Hall's quite a ruin. Not a stone standing. It was burnt down just about harvest time. Fire broke out in the dead of night. Before the engines arrived from Millcote, the building was one mass of flame. The dead of night. Was it known how it started? Well, I guessed, Mum. I guessed. Indeed, I'd say it was ascertained without a doubt. See, there was a woman. Would you believe it? A lunatic kept in the house. And this woman turned out to be Mr. Rochester's wife. It all came to light in a strange way. Yes, it did. There was a young lady who came to live at the hall, a governess. But the fire, was Mr. Rochester at home when the fire broke out? Oh, yes, indeed he was. He went up to the attic. All was burnt above and below and got the servants out of their beds and helped them down himself. And then he went back to get his mad wife out of her cell. We called to him. She was on the roof and we heard him call her name. We saw him approach her and... And then, ma'am... He yelled, gave a spring, and next minute she lay smashed on the pavement. Dead? Yes. Dead as the stones on which her brain and blood were scattered. Oh. But is he alive? Huh? Oh, yes. Yes, Mr. Rochester's alive. But many think he'd better be dead. Why? Where is he? Is he in England? Aye, aye. He's in England. He can't get out of England. 
My fancy is a fixture now. He's stone blind. Yes, stone blind, Mr. Rochester. house nearby, with two of the old servants from Cornfield looking after him. The parlor looked gloomy. A neglected handful of fire burnt low in the grate, and leaning over it with his head supported against the high old-fashioned mantelpiece, stood Mr. Rochester. Is that you, Mrs. Fairfax? Down, father. Down. Hello. Is you, Mrs. Fairfax, is it not? Mrs. Fairfax is in the kitchen. Who is this? Who, who is this? Answer me. Speak again. Will you have a little tea? Who is it? Who speaks? Your dog knows me, and John and Mrs. Fairfax know I'm here. I came only this evening. It's come over me. What sweet madness has seized me. Where are you? Are you only a voice? I can't see, but I must feel that my heart will stop. My brain burst. Very fingers. The small, slight fingers. There must be more of her. Is it Jane? This is a shape. This is a size. And this her voice. She's all here. Her heart, too. God bless you, sir. I'm glad to be so near you again. Jane Eyre. Rochester continued blind the first two years of our marriage. Then one morning, as I was writing a letter for him to his dictation, he came and bent over me. Jane. Jane. Have you a glittering ornament around your neck? Yes. And Jane, are you wearing a pale blue dress? Yes. Later, when our firstborn was put into his arms, he could see that the boy had inherited his own eyes as they once were. Laughing, brilliant, and black. Listening to the Campbell Playhouse presentation of Jane Eyre, starring Orson Welles and Madeline Carroll. Mr. Welles and our guest will be back with us in just a moment. Meanwhile, you may have noticed earlier in our program that in speaking of Campbell's chicken soup, I referred to it as homey. Now, that's exactly what it is old fashioned, 
and homey. But while at home it's often made from leftover chicken, Campbell's use all the choice meat of selected plump chickens in making their chicken soup. With this one advantage, they follow closely the old home way of making chicken soup. They simmer the broth long and slowly till it's rich with chicken flavor. And then they measure in snow-white rice and add tempting pieces of chicken meat to lend the final, authentic, home-like touch. Now, isn't that the kind of old-fashioned chicken soup that would appeal to the appetites at your house? I really believe it is. And so I say again, just as sure as you like chicken, you like Campbell's chicken soup. Have it tomorrow, won't you? And now, here is Orson Welles. Tonight, ladies and gentlemen, no introduction is necessary. Jane Eyre, as ever was, was played to you by one of your favorite actresses and one of our favorite guests, Miss Madeline Carroll. Thank you, Orson. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Miss Carroll, ladies and gentlemen, seems fated on this program to play young women who have a hard time with their men. When you were with us last, Madeline, in the Garden of Allah, you were not, as I remember, the happiest of girls in your romantic life. No. And last year in The Green Goddess, as a victim of the villainous Raja Rook, I wasn't entirely at ease either. I've about that. I'm sorry about the Raja. <laughs> but I don't mind the tortures you put me through, Orson. It's so wonderful to be loved that much. Maybe I don't know much about women, Madeline, but I don't think it'd be nice to be loved not quite so much and to be tortured just a little less. Orson, you're right. You don't know much about women. I suppose. But I do know that you've just given us one of the loveliest performances we've ever had on the Campbell Playhouse. We're very happy and able to be with us again tonight. Good night, Madeline, and thanks again. Miss Carol, of course, ladies and gentlemen, with Jane Eyre. And you will recognize a great name of the theater. You very possibly recognized a voice. When I tell you that Mrs. Fairfax was played by none other than Cecilia Loftus. Mr. Brocklehurst was Robert Coote. George Coulouris was the innkeeper. Edgar Berrier was the priest. The young Jane Eyre was Sarita Wooten. Roger Stewart is your obedient servant. Music for the Campbell Playhouse was arranged into a large measure composed and is always conducted by Bernard Herman. Ladies and gentlemen, with tonight's broadcast, we are concluding our winter series of Campbell Playhouse presentations. Our sponsors, the makers of Campbell Soups, have asked me to express publicly their appreciation to Orson Welles for his splendid services as the producer and star of the Playhouse, and to you, our listeners, for your interest in our broadcasts and your patronage. Mr. Wells Campbells are happy to have presented the Playhouse with you as its producer for the past two years. The success of the Campbell Playhouse has been your success. As listeners, our sponsors have asked me to tell you how much they've enjoyed your shows and that each succeeding Sunday evening has confirmed their high regard for you as producer and star. And as sponsors... They've enjoyed, too, the happy association with you. Thank you, Ernest Chappell. I'd like to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, that my sponsors are very nice sponsors indeed. Which is understating the situation. I have enjoyed the opportunity afforded me on the Campbell Playhouse as producer, dramatist, and as actor more than I can tell you. This series of broadcasts has been... A genuinely happy experience for me. A very pleasant relationship indeed. I'd like now to thank all of those who contributed so generously of their time and talent in assisting me. Actors, 
with whom you are familiar by this time, fine actors like George Kouloris, Baron Mercury Group, Ray Collins, Edgar Berrier, Everett Sloan, Agnes Moorhead, Frank Riddick, a lot more I just haven't time to mention. Besides these, the people behind the scenes about whom you know little or nothing. Don McBain, our wonderful engineer Tracy, our production man. Best in the business. Harry Esman, the wizard of the sound effects department. All the assistants to all these people. These are the Campbell Playhouse. Believe me, they're all wonderful. Now, ladies and gentlemen, permit me to remind you that all of us on the Campbell Playhouse, my sponsors, the makers of Campbell Soups, Everybody else on this program remains, as always, obediently loyal. If you have enjoyed these Campbell Playhouse presentations, won't you tell your grocer so tomorrow when you order Campbell's chicken soup? And may I also remind you that Campbell's soups are broadcasting many radio shows each week for your enjoyment. Tomorrow morning, for example, you may listen to Campbell's short, short story. And also, Life Begins, the story of Martha Webster. And tomorrow evening, as usual, you may enjoy Amos and Andy. And here is news. Immediately following Amos and Andy tomorrow night, and four nights a week thereafter, you may hear Lanny Ross singing your favorite songs. All these programs come to you from the makers of Campbell's Suits. This is Ernest Chappell saying thank you and good night. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System.